It is good to have you here with us on campus and online. We are so delighted that you've chosen to worship Jesus Christ as a part of the East Side Body of Christ here in Anderson, Indiana. Today we're finishing up a series that uh, we called Essentials. It comes out of a letter written in the first century from the church in Jerusalem to Christians in a city called Antioch. Now, the importance of this letter is that as the, as the faith in Jesus Christ had been shared with people who were not from the Jewish background, questions arose about how the two communities would interact. And so the Christians in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas from their community to Jerusalem in, in order to ask questions because some people had, had come and had taught some things a little differently than what they had originally understood. And so, in response to those questions, the, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem gathered together, and, and as they did, they began to consider the questions. And in the process, as we've read this letter, we've, we've begun to realize that, that there are some things that were essential in the first century for what it means to follow Jesus that are just as essential in the 21st century. And so, as we've read this letter the last few weeks, we've, we've identified several things. One is that it's important that, that grace be the, the method of our salvation. And there is, there, there's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ, and, and so He offers us grace for the forgiveness of our sin. And that how we share that grace should be marked by love, because that's the way James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, responded to the questions. He, he responded in love to that. And, and as they responded, they identified four areas that that love and grace should address. Uh, one was that it should always be the mark of a Christian that we understand that God is supreme. That very scriptures of the Bible begin in Genesis chapter 1 with, in the beginning, God. And so in our life, it ought to be, in the beginning, God. And then, and then they also identified that we ought to be marked by the, by the breath of God in us, the Spirit of God in us. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be marked by the, the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we should, also, we should also be marked by the understanding that for those who follow Jesus, life, life is valuable. And we should not be a part of the process that, that was known in the first century and is even accelerated in the 21st century of dehumanizing other people and, and using people as objects rather than as people created in the image of God. And all of this was rolled into a letter, and we've been looking at each of those processes in the last few weeks. And today, as we come to the end of the letter, I want to read for you a couple of things. I want to read for you the, the last part of the letter, and then I want to read for you the reaction of the people in Antioch when they received it. Because here's what I know. I know that, that in our culture in the 21st century, when, when we are shown the boundaries of something, we, we have a tendency. I mean, I, I didn't live in the first century, but I've lived in the 21st century, and here's what I know. When, you, when we're given boundaries, we're like little kids, right, who like to go and push against the boundaries. I, re, I remember uh, Rick Warren from out in Saddleback Church in California talking about when his children were little, he had a birthday party, 
And, uh, and in that birthday party, he, he, he told the boys who had gathered to celebrate his son's birthday. And these kids were all preschoolers, right? It's so like four or five years old. It's a birthday party. And he takes them into the backyard and he says, now boys, listen, you can play over this whole yard. We've got a swing set. We've, we've got food. We've got games. You can have the run of the entire yard, but you cannot spit on the rose bush. And they're all like, okay, we got it. No spitting on the rose bush. And then he went in the house and just sat by the window and waited. If you've had preschoolers, you know what happened. Within four or five minutes, every little boy is sitting by the rose bush going, and just spitting everything he's got. Finally, they all stopped. He went out the door and they said, what are you doing? I said, waiting for more spit. You know, we just, we just got to do that. And, and when we're told boundaries, that's kind of what we do. We go right up to the boundary, and we just, whatever we're told not to do, it's our human nature to do that. And in the first century and the 21st century, God has designed for us some essential things. And so as we read this letter today, I I want you to hear a couple of things. There's no guilt, no inappropriate guilt intended. No shame. I told you last week, this is a no shame zone. So if some of the things we investigate today are going on in your life or have gone on in your life, please, no guilt unless it's appropriate guilt. No shame at all. Because you see, appropriate guilt is when God's Spirit convicts us in our heart and asks us to change. That's appropriate. And by the way, that's okay if that happens to you today. But if you, if you are having inappropriate guilt, the kind of guilt that consumes you, then, then you, you need to know Jesus died to cover that guilt, to forgive you of that behavior, to forgive you of that part of your past, to, to heal that part of what's happened to you. And so that's why, that's why we often say around here that, that Jesus, is, Jesus is never in the shame. This is a no shame zone. I'm not here today to shame you. And some of the things we're going to look at today, uh, they go countercultural. I mean, entirely countercultural. So listen to the letter, and then we'll investigate why in the world the church in Jerusalem and James, the brother of Jesus, would pick these things. And particularly today, we're going to look at why in the world he picked sexual immorality. L- listen to the letter from Acts chapter 15. I'm going to start reading at, um, at, at verse 20, 25. Uh, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the very sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas from among us, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that, that you should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, put God first, and from blood, value life, and from what has been strangled, allow the breath of God to breathe in you, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. 
And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So, there you have it. Included in the essential things for Christians in the first century, and I would suggest for Christians in the 21st century, is abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, why, why in the world would James and the, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem include that? Well, partly it was because they understood that the Gentile world had a different view of people. People in the Gentile world who didn't know Jesus Christ, who didn't hear the story of God's love and redemption and forgiveness, viewed other human beings as objects, much like the 21st century. And, and so they, they said to them, look, we, we want you to abstain from a lifestyle that is opposite to God, and we want you to live within the boundaries. Now, in each of these four areas after love and grace, we've discovered that, that all of these go back to a foundational understanding in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And, and this one is no different. Uh, it, it goes back to, to the place in Scripture where in Genesis chapter 2, as the writer is telling us about the creation of humanity, he includes something that, that's very important. You see, he includes an understanding about morality that, that basically to be moral, the opposite of immoral, is moral. To be moral is more, more than simply giving your consent. You see, the, the, Bible, the Bible is very clear about this that giving your consent is not enough. Giving your consent doesn't make it right. I mean, we live in a world right now where, where the definition of right and wrong is, did, did I consent to it? And, and what, what James knew and what the writer in Genesis knows is that, is that God designed us in a way that, that is different than simply giving consent. Now, I want you to understand, I know that the things I'm about to say to you are 180 degrees from what you experience in the rest of this world right now. When I first became a pastor and started doing weddings, I remember the first wedding I did for a lot of reasons. Number one, the rehearsal went for four hours because the bride's sisters didn't like what she did, and I promised that was never happening to another bride again, all right? And it hasn't. The second thing I remember is, is that... Um, is that when I got ready to sign the license, it asked me a question I'd never thought about. The license in those days said this. Was this a religious ceremony or a civil ceremony? There was a difference in Tennessee in those days. There was a difference in Indiana in those days. And I would suggest to you that even though that question is not on the wedding license today, there is, there is still a difference in the two. Because you see, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we take our direction from this book called the Bible. It, it's how we know the thoughts of God. It's how we know the, the boundaries for our sexual expression. Now, understand, God did create sex, and He created it to be good. 
for the animals, sex was created for procreation so that there would be more animals. But for human beings, it was more than just procreation. It was also for pleasure. But it was also for, for the intimacy of a couple. And, and the development of that couple is defined in a different way than merely someone giving consent. Some of you are listening to me saying, Pastor, why are you dwelling on this? Well, for two reasons. One is because of that question on that marriage license all those years ago. Is it a civil ceremony or a religious ceremony? Because right now, if you're a citizen of the United States, you live in a country where the Supreme Court in June of 2015 defined marriage as being between two consenting adults. And that's it. There's no other definition. So that in this country now, there's, there's a legal platform. Now, by the way, for those of you who are getting nervous, this is not a political sermon. I have no intent of being political with what I'm saying. What I do have is every intent of being biblical. And I want to suggest to you that, that just like in many other countries around the world now, that there is a difference in being married in a civil ceremony and being married in a religious ceremony. And that when you understand the difference, it makes all the difference in your willingness to be engaged in sexual morality rather than sexual immorality. Because being moral is more than simply giving consent. Listen to the Scripture as I read it from Genesis chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was the creature's name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Remember that. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place in the man's flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, God made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, when the writer of Genesis describes the creation of humanity, he describes a uniqueness in the relationship between men and women. And he defines marriage as being between a man and a woman. And it's even in the actual Hebrew. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Um, in fact, I, my, my Greek professors used to laugh at the way I tried to, to pronounce Greek words because I'm from Mississippi and my tongue just won't get around some of those consonants, all right? And, and, and the, the Hebrew was even worse. But I, I want you to understand why this passage is the the foundation. It's the same passage Jesus referred to in the Sermon on the Mount when asked about marriage. 
It's the same passage that the Apostle Paul referred to in his letters to the early first century church when talking about marriage. And in this, in this word, in this phrase that says suitable helper, please hear this. It does not mean that the woman is less than the man. It doesn't mean that the man gets to rule over the woman. That's not what it means. No, it's a distinctive phrase that, that basically means that at the same time, something is similar and dissimilar. It's the same and not the same. And so in, in, this, in this looking for a suitable helper for Adam, because it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, what God did was he, he created a person, someone in his image, someone to be valued, who was the same as the man in that she was human, but different than the man than because she was woman. And that in the beauty of that, in the miraculous of that, designed their bodies in such a way that two people could become one flesh and create another human being, while at the same time, at the same time enhancing their love and covenant with each other. So when we start talking about marriage being between a man and a woman, we're not talking about the law of this country. The law of this country is consenting adults can legally be married. But the, but the truth of this book, from the very beginnings and foundations, is that marriage was designed by God not as an agreement between two consenting adults, but as a truth, as a moral that is above what we do in communities. Because you see, morality acknowledges truth that goes beyond our feelings. Now, I want you to hear that. It, 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 it acknowledges truth that goes beyond our feelings. Because your feelings while they're created by God and they're a part of who you are, they should not be what leads you constantly. I mean, as the pandemic has taught us anything, it ought to teach us that. I mean, yes, embrace your feelings. But those of you who have, in the middle of the pandemic, suffered from depression, you know. Sometimes your, your feelings are not accurate. I, multiple times throughout the last year, I've, I've looked at my wife, Becky, and I've said, Becky, I've got to tell you, the data says things are going to get better. The data says things are doing better, but my feelings are not matching the data. Your, your feelings are not what should drive you in a biblical Christian worldview. They should be acknowledged. They should be embraced. They should be honored, but they should not drive you. What should drive you is a truth, a moral that is beyond your feelings. What, what Jesus said to let us know that was in the Sermon on the Mount. You know that, that, that the, the sermon where he talks about the Lord's Prayer, the sermon where he talks about all the Beatitudes and shares. In the middle of that sermon, in Matthew chapter 5, look what Jesus says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which by the way, I'm living in a world where I need to define this. Adultery simply means this, that you are having sex with someone who is not your spouse. Okay? If you are married and you're having sex with someone who's not your spouse, that is adultery. If you're not married, the biblical boundaries are that you should not be having sex with anyone 
And that if you are, the Bible has a word for that. Some of you are going to laugh at this word because it's not a word we use very often, but the Bible word for that is called fornication. It's kind of a weird-sounding word. I remember a single mom one time in a class we were teaching here when she understood that word. She had never been married. She had a beautiful little girl. She had come into her Christian faith from a very rough background, and she looked at me, and she goes, oh, so you mean I'm a fornicator? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. Not the word I would have chosen, uh, but we've got to be clear about the definitions. What Jesus is saying here to the people gathered as he's sharing the Sermon on the Mount is there are some boundaries. Sexual morality is based upon a moral code that is truth that goes beyond your feelings because your feelings, your feelings won't always lead you in the right place. When I was a, when I was a kid, um, I, I was raised, as many of you know, with two brothers. And so my father took the responsibility of sex education in our family. My mother was a part of the discussion, but dad kind of led the way. And uh, one of the discussions that we would often have is, what is, what is lust? What, what does it mean to say that I've looked at someone with lustful intent? And my father, who was from western Kentucky, came up with what I refer to as a Kentucky definition, all right? Um, if you've got family in Kentucky, they can be honored by this. Here was my dad's definition of lust, who, by the way, my father was a Church of God pastor for over 50 years and the president of a Bible college for the last 10 of his ministry. So he'd researched this just a tad bit. And here's what he would say. Because if you're the, by the way, if you're the president of any college, somebody's going to ask you, some freshman's going to ask you about lust. I'm just going to tell you right now. And so his definition to us was this. Boys, if you're driving down the road or riding your bike down the road, or running down the road, or riding a bus down the road, and you see a beautiful woman on the side of the road, and you say in your heart, hey, that's a beautiful woman. There is nothing sinful about that. But if you turn the car around to go back multiple times, if you yell for the bus driver to stop the bus, if you wreck your bicycle, <laughs> or you walk into a tree, boys, that's probably lust. And, and I want to say this to you, because some of you, some of you listening to me, some of you in the room, some of you online, you're listening to that, and you're going, well, hey, pastor, that doesn't, you know, if I'm a man, that, that doesn't bother me. But if I see another man, then I, I have those feelings. And some of you ladies and you see another woman, you have those feelings. And what I'm here to let you know is that when James and the church in Jerusalem said to the church in Antioch, hey, we need you to abstain from sexual immorality, they were including you too. Not just those of us who are heterosexual, but whatever your feelings lead you to, what the Scriptures teach us is that the action upon those feelings is the place where you violate the trust God has given you. And a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview says, listen, morals, morals are more than consent. And, and morals, morals, they acknowledge a truth, a, a truth that, that goes beyond your feelings. To, to live with a, a sense of biblical morality is to understand that there is truth beyond your feelings. And that truth is included in this book. 
This truth is included in the teachings of Jesus. This truth is included in the teachings of the leaders of the church in the first century. And what they're saying to you is not designed to squash you. What they're saying to you is not designed to dehumanize you. It's not designed to demean you. What it is is designed to show you who God is and how much he loves you and remind you that by his grace you can overcome anything that stands between you and him so you make him first and you understand you were created in his image and that life is valuable and that he breathes in you and that when you do that it raises you up, it lifts you up to another level of life to a level of life where you live with a, with a sense of moral truth inside of you. Because you see, truth is not subjective. Truth comes from the creator of the universe. And culture cannot create morality. I want you to hear that. It's really important. Culture cannot create morality. Now, for those of you who have studied sociology, there's a term that sociologists use that, that is often confused with the term moral or with morality. It's the term mores. It's spelled similarly. It's, 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 it's expressed verbally in the same way. But a social more is created by a culture. But moral truth is different than a cultural more, a social more. Uh, let me explain to you. When, when I travel to South India to work with the Church of God in South India, or when I travel to West Africa to work with the Church of God in the Ivory Coast, and I'm teaching there, there are some things, there are some things that, that they will understand because they are biblical, they are moral, they are truth that transcends because biblical truth transcends culture. It's brought in in different ways. It's expressed in different ways. But, but those, things, those things go across the cultural lines. But mores, social mores, oh, those differ in every country. So if you're wise, and a very good friend of mine told me the first time I went overseas, went somewhere besides where I'm from, they said, listen, you better make sure you get a national leader or a missionary or somebody who knows the social mores because while you're going to try to teach biblical morality in a non-Christian culture, you're going to need to know the social mores. For instance, in the Ivory Coast, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, if someone looks at you and goes, That's, that, in our culture, that means, come here. But over there, it means here. And if you look at somebody and go, it means something totally different. Don't do that. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I know Larry and Leanne Sellers, our staff missionaries, said, just don't do that, Carrie. I'm like, okay. That's a social more. But I'm not talking about social mores. I'm talking about biblical truth. And I'm talking about morality from the standpoint that it's more than simply consensual actions, you can consent to bad actions. Two adults, two adults can give their consent to something that is morally wrong. But if you're living with a biblical morality, culture can't create that. 
It cannot make that happen because a biblical morality, a moral, is, is bigger than any culture. It's a truth that goes beyond our feelings. Jesus demonstrated that on the day that he died. But before they crucified him, when he was standing in the presence of Pontius Pilate, who thought he had the power of Jesus' life or death on Jesus. And in that process, there's, a, there's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Uh, listen as I read it for you. Pilate is told Jesus, they say you're a king. Are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jewish leaders who brought me here to you. But my kingdom is not from the world. He says it twice. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. But for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? You see, when we live like Pilate, we, we think we create truth. We think your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and you shouldn't tell me what to do with my truth, and I shouldn't tell you what to do with your truth. But when we live with a morality instead of just social mores, then we, we understand that, that Jesus Christ is truth. And Jesus is the one who, who told us if we want to know the truth of God, we need to get to know Jesus. And so Jesus shares truth. Now here's the part I really want you to hear. Particularly if you're sitting here listening to me in the room or if you're listening to us online. See, what I, I want you to know is that Jesus shares the ultimate morality and it restores purity. Because I'm not naive. I know that there are some of you who are listening to me and, you know, you're, you're going, you know, Pastor, that's great, but you know what? I've, I've already been immoral with my actions. And, and whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, bisexual, whatever it is, you've, you've, you've done things that you're listening to me and you're going, well, yeah, I've that, that, I, I guess I just don't fit. No, no, no. You do fit. You fit because the moral, the morality that Jesus comes to give us is one that restores. It's one that purifies. And, and I think that's the thing we miss. That's why we take shame on ourselves. That's why we shame one another. That's why we turn this whole thing into a political discussion instead of an understanding that there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And when we step out of the kingdom of the world in order to follow Jesus Christ, there's a whole new set of boundaries and we don't need to spit on the rose bush. We simply need to allow the Spirit of God to lead us. Jesus demonstrated it one day in one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. It's, it's even more important to me than the, the story of Pilate and Jesus. Because it's how the story of Pilate and Jesus gets interpreted. You see, it, it's recorded in John chapter 8. Some of you know the story. Jesus is in a city, and the religious leaders of that town, they bring to, they bring to Jesus a woman they've caught 
having sex with someone who's not her husband. And they bring her to him in disgrace and disrobed and humiliated and shamed in front of everybody in her village. And, and when they bring her to him, they say, look, we found this woman violating the law of Moses. We found her being immoral. And so we, we want to know, Jesus, what are you going to do with her? And look what Jesus did. As they continued to ask him, Jesus stood up and said to them, let the one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bent down again and wrote on the ground. Uh, there's a little footnote in some of your Bibles that will tell you that some of the early manuscripts, uh, one of them actually says he was writing the sins of the people who were there in front of him. And when they heard what Jesus said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now here's the part I want you to hear. If you've been listening to me and you think, you know what, there's no way. There's no way what I've done is too, too wrong. I've been immoral. I can't be purified. Look, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ leads us to, to abstain from sexual immorality, not out of fear, not not out of social obedience, but out of the truth that God made us for more than that. God made you for more than that. So whether, whether you are attracted to men or you are attracted to women, whether you're a woman attracted to women or men attracted to men, the issue is the same. The issue is what do you do with those feelings that can't be trusted? Will you trust the truth of God? Because the truth of God is this. You are loved. You can be forgiven. And right now, wherever you are and whatever's going through your mind, if you hear nothing else I've said today, if you shut me down from the get-go, please open back up for just a moment and hear this. It is essential for us to know that Jesus Christ loves us enough to make us brand new people to make us people who understand that He's called us to more than we've experienced. He's called you to more than you know. And sexual morality, living by a moral standard that is from truth, not from culture, is, that is the way. That is the way of Jesus. And he is the way, the truth, and the life.